and welcome to Final Games, a podcast about the games that inspired us. Thank you for joining me, your host Liam Edwards, for the 64th time to banish another incredible member of the games industry to a deserted place where they can only take eight games with them to play for the rest of their days. And joining me this week is an incredibly exciting guest who, just like me, got their start in the games industry working in QA. Although, if I can get to the same stage in life as my guest and be even half as successful as them, I'll be extremely happy. Starting all the way back in 1994 at Origin Systems in Austin, Texas, my guest worked early on in his career as a QA lead on the PC classic System Shock. At around the same time, he also ended up working as an associate producer on Ultimate 8, alongside games industry legend and co-founder of Origin Systems, Richard Garriott. After leaving Origin Systems in 1996, my guest worked on a few titles before winding up working with other games industry legend, Warren Spector, at Iron Storm. Working in their role as a lead designer, my guest helped create one of the highest rated and most beloved PC titles of all time, Deus Ex. Before leaving Iron Storm though, my guest also helped with the development of the sequel, Deus Ex Invisible War. After leaving Iron Storm, my guest then worked a short stint at Midway Games, once again as a lead designer, but it was in 2008 when he became partner and co-creative director of Arcane Studios. It was here where he and his team went on to develop one of the highest rated new IPs of the past decade in the action stealth title, Dishonored. In 2012, Dishonored won a whole host of Game of the Year awards, including the 2013 BAFTA Award for Best Game. Due to the huge success of the first Dishonored title, work began on a sequel. But before that, my guest somehow found the time to write his first novel, which released in 2013, called Big Jack is Dead. It was on November 11th last year, though, when the highly anticipated sequel Dishonored 2 launched worldwide, with players this time being able to take on the role of not only Corvo, but also his daughter Emily. The game received incredible scores across the board and was praised by fans and critics alike. And later this year, fans of Dishonored 2 will get a little more to taste when the DLC Death of the Outsider launches in September. I'm incredibly excited to say that joining me this week is industry legend, the lovely Mr. Harvey Smith. Hello, Harvey. Hey, how are you, Liam? I'm very good, thank you, Harvey. Thank you so much for joining me. How are you doing today? Uh, I'm pretty good. Um, I love hearing people introduce me. It's like so interesting to hear all of the like uh, highlights along the way, and it, it's like 23 years worth of stuff. And a few things got left out, but like it's incredible just to think about like how long we've all been grinding on games and uh, <laughs> you know n- new IPs and sequels and like changing player demographics and new technologies i mean it's just like when you stop and look at it instead of dealing with your day-to-day problem solving or whatever when you actually stop and like look back it's just like oh my god that's a lot of time that's a lot of stuff a lot of people (laughs) all i look at it is like that's a heck of a lot of crunch periods over the years yeah and a lot of trying to avoid that to be honest but uh, and the main thing that sticks in my mind, just listening to you talk, is like the people. Because for every game you were talking about, and every company you were talking about, multiple names were popping off in my head. Um, that's the thing, know. isn't it? All the different teams over the years, and all the yeah. different people you've worked with. And that's also the problem within this introduction is when I have a guest like yourself on, and it always goes back to the same sort of question: How did you start in the industry? But then getting up to the point where you are now. How do you cover in such a short time such an amazing and incredibly illustrious and long career? Um, It's always difficult to condense into such a thing, especially when you have such incredible highlights like Deus Ex and Dishonored and working on some projects like the Midway Project and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, a lot of it is luck. Um, 
you know, we all love games and we all are very passionate about it. And sometimes it comes together and sometimes it doesn't. Uh, but if you work long enough, people tend to just focus on the, the highlights. Um, Today is like really weird for me talking about the people thing because, like I said, as you were talking about the different games, I was thinking about people I worked with and I no longer work with, some of whom I still work with. We still have several people on the team here at Arcane that literally worked on Deus Ex with me starting in the late 90s. It's incredible. It is incredible, and they worked on Prey and Dishonored. But uh, I started this day on a really sad note because I only found out this morning uh, that I guess a day or two ago our composer... Daniel oh, Licht passed away. Yeah, and yes, uh, I did hear about that this morning. You know, I'm starting very sorry with to hear that. Yeah, starting with Raphael Colantonio kind of finding him for Dishonored One and us collaborating with him then, and then me collaborating with him heavily on Dishonored Two, uh, and our audio team um, Arnaud Deviod and uh, Thomas Meton in in uh, Lyon, France. Like that. That was the we very often Skyped with Dan. We visited him in L.A. He came to our Dishonored events. Uh, not that long ago, I had dinner with him and his wife. And he was just an amazing, warm human being who had done all this amazing music. Like, uh, the Dexter music was so signature. The Dishonored yeah. music was so amazing. And, of course, he had a long... Uh, he was 60. That's not old enough to die, of course. I mean, no. he, that was young. But, like, uh, he had a long career that... You know, he lived in New York for a while, I think, as a jazz musician. He went to, I don't remember the name of the school, but he he went to an illustrious school. He had done film scores for years, and then he had also done video game stuff. And he lived in Topinga Canyon, which is beautiful in L.A., and had a, an amazing studio. I have all these memories where we'd be talking to him about trying to keep his signature sound from Dishonored with the didgeridoos and the dark, semi-industrial undertones. Yeah. But try to bring something about southern europe to it you know and we the guys and i we were talking to him and he was in his studio in topinga canyon and he would he just walked to the back of the room on camera using skype like we are today and he grabbed a what's it called the bazooki uh the the greek guitar and he was like you mean like this and he just started playing some of the dishonored <laughs> sounds but on the on this greek instrument and we were like Yes, That's like it. that. That's amazing. That's exactly you know? so, it. <laughs> so it was an incredibly sad. Uh, yeah, just pure talent, total skill, like years and years of mastery. And I just woke up this morning and saw that news. And honestly, I just teared up because uh, he was a sweet, sweet guy. He, he had just had a son. It's almost two years old. Uh, <sighs> it was a shock. I guess he mm. found out about all this. And then very quickly thereafter... According to what I read in the obituary, he would very af- uh, very quickly thereafter passed. And so, you know, the creative world lost someone amazing. And um, I'm just so fortunate that we got to work with him on Dishonored, The Bigmore Witches, Knife of Dunwall, Dishonored 2, and The Death of the Outsider. Yeah, I... I'd read about the news this morning and um, I wondered, I was wondering how close he was in terms of working with the studio, whether it was sort of under a freelance thing uh, and there wasn't much sort of contact between you guys, but it's, it's incredibly sort of sad to hear that, you know, he was sort of, sort of such a big part of the studio and the news today is incredible lost and the soundtrack you know for people who've played this on it and stuff like that is one of the sort of standouts it's what makes the atmosphere of dunwall and stuff like that really stand out very strongly and 
That is very sad news indeed. I'm sorry to yes, hear that. Yes, sometimes you contract with people and they just look at the work and they do their thing or whatever, and that's yeah, fine. Yeah, and There's you no have problem. sort of no, yeah, no real sort of I don't know emotional creative. connection or yeah. yeah. But other times you collaborate with someone and there's a real chemistry and there's you by the I mean we've worked together often on so many years you're laughing as half the time you're just laughing and talking about stuff and yeah. the other half the time you're you're focused on the work and you have this trust where like you know he was almost always on time and under budget and all that but if he was if he ever said I need more time for this or whatever we were like ah screw the contract just give us what you can now and do the other thing when you when you want. And yeah. similarly, um, if we if we wanted something else from him that the contract didn't quite cover, he'd be like, you know, I care more about making this right than I do. And that's the kind of guy he was. He he was just so dedicated. He even came to to France to while I was living over there. Uh, I'm in Austin, Texas right now, but he came to France and vis- visited us for a few days just so in addition to the calls and the Skyping and, the you know, we could actually sit down face-to-face and talk about things and show him the game uh, anyway, just like, uh, not to start on a somber note, but man, what an incredible guy. And I will, he will always be one of the things I will, I will, I will think about that, that creative relationship when I think about the Dishonored games. And I know Ralph Colantonio feels the same way. Same way. Well, that's the thing about the games industry as well. Having someone who is still relatively young and has worked on projects previously. When I think about my time working on projects in the past, it's the people I think about most, and they're the people I miss. Yeah. When I now being in Japan, and I think about like the team at Rockstar when I was working on GTA, and like the highlights is not the game or necessarily the project or the decisions that were made. It's always like the laughs I had with my friends mm-hmm. at the studio, and the people who got married, the people who had babies, the people who you know, went on to do wonderful things all during that time. Like those highlights stand out way more than sort of creative or project stuff over the times. I think, especially someone who's been in the industry for so long now, the amount of teams and people, and even as you said, the people you work long periods of time with all the way, you know, from Deus Ex to now, it's, it's the people who stand out more than anything. Mm -hmm. For sure. Well, unfortunately, yeah, we have to start sort of on a somber note. But in terms of having you here, Javi, is very exciting. And I'm very happy to finally get you on the show. <laughs> it's been a few few weeks of back and forth with a couple of the people at Arcane about getting you on the show. And I'm very excited to have you here. Um, so, I mean, everyone sort of knows about your history and about Deus Ex and the incredible studios that you've worked for. And obviously Dishonored being one of the... Uh, standout ips in the whole of the games industry over the past decade just coming sort of out of nowhere and just blowing everyone out of the water with the first game and then the sequel living up to that and just being one of my favorite games of last year um you're sort of getting ready to release a new dlc in less than i guess 30 days or so um how's that going yeah so um I really have to hand it to the team in Lyon because halfway through the planning of this standalone expansion, The Death of the Outsider, I moved back to the United States. And yeah, because so you, you were splitting your time. Well, you were sort of based in Lyon, weren't you? Yeah, I lived there for four years with those guys and had an amazing experience, the first two years of which was thrilling and the second two years of which was kind of a grind uh, because I was so <laughs> homesick and, uh, you know, yeah. it was... 
It's hard to live in a culture where you don't speak the language. That said, the studio and the people there are amazing. And so uh, leaving as we planned and set in motion and then being in a different time zone and only being able to play and comment on the game every now and then, uh, I would have liked to have been more, on the second half of it, I would have been, you know, would have liked to have been more engaged with them. But the, yeah. the, the thing is, the team's so amazing. And in addition to all the people that, you know, worked on Dishonored 2 and did such a good job there, uh, I have to say that uh, Dinga Bacaba, Christophe Carrier, and Sashka Duval, uh, and Sebastian Mitton, they all stepped up their efforts. Those were my creative allies, uh, among many other people, of course. But those were some of the people I talked to the most and spent the most time with in Lyon. And so those guys really stepped up their efforts in the the final months of Death of the Outsider. And it's just amazing to see developers going from like one experience level to the next level where you just look at them and you're just like, wow, you're a master of your field and you're you're doing amazing <laughs> work and uh, you're ready for that next the step trust. or whatever. Yeah, the you trust. trust. You, don't, you, don't have to, you don't have to worry too yeah. much about leaving the studio and letting them make more creative decisions without you, I think. They're absolutely in, you know, capable of all that and they did a great job. So, uh, yeah, and, and Death of the Outsider is something, you know, we talk about it now and it's in its semi-final form, right? So it has the name Death of the Outsider. It has a particular piece of poster art. It has Billy Lurk as the protagonist, etc. It has... yeah. The mechanics that it has and the fiction that it has, but you know, it's an idea that the the genesis of an idea from very early on, actually, in Dishonored Two, uh, where I started kicking around the idea of uh, you know going this direction, and we talked about many different combinations of how it could work, but we really put off the hardcore planning until the end of um, Dishonored Two, and then. We had to get serious about okay, what what are we going to actually do here? And that's where the real planning began, the work uh, with the team in in Lyon. So it's something we're very excited about having Billy as a protagonist and having the death of the outsider as the focus of it. Yeah, I was going to say exploring sort of more into the outsider character, which is kind of dishonored was always kind of supernatural, but it, because of the way Dunwall was and the sort of. I always think it was like European industrial sort of sense of atmosphere and feel. It kind of felt very grounded in reality still a little bit. And then the outsider was always this kind of incredibly supernatural thing that I was always wanting to explore a little more. And when I saw the trailer for the the DLC a couple of months back, I was like, oh, yeah, now we get to see more of the sort of supernatural things. And it's like death of the outsider. Oh, okay. Now this is interesting. Um, so how much are you going to sort of explore a little more into the sort of supernatural kind of things? Yeah, we definitely touch on more of that in Dishonored 2 than we did in Dishonored 1. And yeah. we explore even more of it in, in Death of the Outsider. But, you know, we're the kind of team that, like, believes in mystery and believes in um, understating things so that the players figure them out on their own. And every player has a slightly different experience because they've inferred different things. So... For every question that we answer, we always try to, you know, ask a new one, basically. And so uh, it's not like I can promise you that this is the absolute reveal <laughs> all that uh, answers all your questions or whatever. It's, That's okay. Uh, this is still a, a world where things are cloaked in mystery and um, uh, there are unknowns and there are subjective things that you have to decide for yourself how you feel about this or that. So even coming up to working on, you know... DLC for Dishonored 2 and having done Dishonored 1 and Dishonored 2 as new IPs, so having to 
create all these brand new ideas and not having to be held back by anything that you've made prior and stuff like that. Just being able to be like creatively sort of free to do whatever you like. Now, even sort of 20 years later, we're talking about you going off to a deserted island and taking video games with you. Are you still as like passionate about video games and as creating video games as you ever were, you know, 20 years ago? It's interesting because I think I was more broadly excited before I'm more narrowly excited now. Uh, <laughs> when someone comes up with something like, you know, the year we released Dishonored 1, Journey came out. And I was so excited about Journey uh, because it felt so different than anything that had come before it. And when Shadow of Mordor came out and it included the Nemesis system, I was like, wow, this is a really clever system. Okay. Uh, so I'm very passionate about things like that. Uh, so more like sort of like mechanics that maybe you haven't seen before or you're like wow in like 20 years of like working on games like how have we not already thought of this kind of idea before yeah. and something just comes out of nowhere yeah and you know um the uh there's always the like mid-level mechanics that that really work out um for dishonored death of the outsider we talked to, early on we talked about something called a hook mine uh, and the original concept was, imagine you could throw something up on the ceiling, and if a, a guard or somebody walked under it, it would magnetically pull them up out of the way and knock them unconscious. So it's a way <laughs> of hiding bodies and knocking people out all at once, and it would be a cool mechanism that if there were too many guards in the area, you could get rid of them in a way that the other guards wouldn't notice or whatever. Yeah. But some of the game design team there, uh, Jonathan Fodral and Jerome Brown and all the all the programmers that work with them, they really took the hook mine in a direction that was way more clever. They prototyped it. They worked on. They just spent a lot of time. Like guys like Jerome Brown, they just spent a lot of time in the. He's a very senior game designer we work with. They just spent a lot of time in the prototype, playing with what could this be like. And they came up with this thing where you can attach it to walls or the ceiling, and it it will magnetically pull somebody. But if you do two of them, it will pull them in different directions. And it's a very simulated approach to like uh, magnetizing the the, the body. And ragdolling yeah. it and pulling it apart and things like that. And it's just a pleasure <laughs> to behold. So every now and then I'm playing and I see something and I'm just like, wow. You guys it, did that? like Yeah, exactly. Like, and evaluating yeah. it, it's like that you took it further than I thought. And, you know, people explain it. Um, but then there's also good, narrative I bet it's a good stuff. Feeling, I bet it's a good feeling to, you know, look at other games and see, like, the mechanics they're making, like the Nemesis system. And then sort of leave your team to do some work for a couple of months and then come back to it and be and play it and be like, oh wow, these are this is exactly like how I feel about other games. It's not like yeah. you play it and you're like, mm, it's kind of missing something that is fresh and new. Yeah, both you know, Death of the Outsider it. and Prey were like that for me because um, I'm remote now from the Leon office and also I wasn't here in Austin during the construction of Prey. Yeah. And so when I got here, I I, I landed in February back, and. Um, I played Prey. I'd played it off and on through development and commented here and there, but never really worked on it, you know. So I played it for the first time all the way from beginning to end when I when I got here, and then I started another playthrough immediately. And uh, <laughs> I did one playthrough with absolutely no psi powers and one with only psi powers. And it's just such an amazing game of the type that I love most, but done by people that uh, are dear to me, but I was not working with. So it, it's almost like a game that I would have loved to have worked on from an alternate dimension that falls in my lap or whatever, you know? So, uh, so yeah. Yeah. Cause but, looking you know, at that... your list, looking at your list today for yeah. final games, there are, 
highlights in there of the kind of games that Prey is exactly like and also Dishonored. So there yeah. is definitely the genesis of the games that you personally like too that fits that sort of image yeah. like Prey. And that's not to say that like there's not constantly games coming out that I love. Like uh, What Remains of Edith Finch I thought was super clever narratively speaking and just very bold, you know. Yeah. Uh, and there are moments in that that will that haunt me, you know, that will stay with me. The 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 swing the swing moment on the tree is like one of the my favorite moments in a game in the last few years. Um, I don't know if you played that game. I have not had a chance to play it yet. I have okay. it on Steam ready, but yeah. I have just not had a chance. Everyone keeps saying and I'm gonna have to play it at some point because it'll get it'll get to a point where everyone will be free to fucking spoil it as much as they want, and I, that's the kind of game that you do not want spoiled for you. Yeah, exactly. And similarly, around the same time, I was playing Horizon Zero Dawn, and I was just like, oh my god, AAA games are so big and do so much, and like, this world is so vast, and there are robot dinosaurs everywhere, and I can control some of them, and you know, um, just crazy, you know. Um, to think where we like sort of started in video games to now, yeah. with the amount of systems that are going on in games, and mm-hmm. just how incredibly big and... I think AAA really reflects the sort of size of the studios that welcome them now and just how masses of people can create games that have masses of systems that just are these incredible, intricate, designed pieces that just blow my mind when I try to deconstruct them in any way. I think it was like my friend Steve Gaynor who just released Tacoma uh, with with their company Fulbright. But I think he was analyzing this video... um, when Far Cry Primal came out or something, and it was like, I think it was like two large animals fighting or something, and he was pointing out with developer vision on, you know, like, check this out. The the, the size of the two creatures is different. They have these all these animations. They have to have breakpoints in the animations where they can get hit legitimately and react, and they can also interact with the collision of the other creature, you know, yeah. like... And, and then break out of that into something else as the other creature decides to shift around. And it just like, we look at things like that, we're just in awe. Like, holy cow, you know, how did someone... <laughs> like someone has thought about that. Yeah. And then someone has researched how those animals would sort of react. Yeah. And then... And just the work Just involved. as a tidbit. Yeah. yeah. And just as a tidbit for the player who might not even see that. Yeah. Like the yeah. player just could just drive past that and ignore it. it right. In the Dishonored games and the Prey and in Prey, we did so much that like isn't intended that you can't see it all because we want you to have that sense that as you play through the game the world was more vast than you could have could have mm. reached and it's a bit at odds psychologically a lot of players have that desire to check all the boxes and to see everything and do yeah. everything and get all the achievements and like in a way we're just running counter to that because we're like if you see everything then you have a full sense of it it, it loses some mystery right you know like uh, yeah but anyway it is one of those things, isn't it? It's um, you want to create not a like I hate the word universe these days. Everyone wants to create a universe, but that tends to mean like multiple sequels and like creating a sort of long-standing story surrounding things. But in terms of like when you make a game or a game series, it's not about create. It's like creating a sense of place. I feel like because video games are the only, it's the only media where you can explore like a three D space to an extent. And you personally, as the player, can do the exploring. You don't have to watch a movie where it explores it for you. It's like 
every time I think when people think about video games, they don't think about like the universe or the story. I think they think of the place, like Dunwall as a place. Mm. And it's only fleshed out by the developer by doing stuff like that. Like putting all these little things that even after like four playthroughs, you'd like turn down an alleyway and you look at a certain time and you see something. You're like, holy fuck, I've never seen that before. I think that truly can only happen in video games. Um, And that is the kind of thing and attention to detail that especially I think only AAA can sort of do with sort of the manpower and the, the size of a studio as well. But it's the sort of special source, I think, that makes games like that very special. Yeah, I mean, there's there's definitely, like, trade-offs for being in large commercial games. Yeah. Um, you have to lose a little bit of the, like, uh, freedom to do whatever you want, you know, to pick any subject matter because you have to justify your budget in some ways. But yeah. at the same time, you, like you said, you have tons of manpower and uh, the scope of what you can do. Um, you have to stop at some point. I remember we had endless arguments in... Dishonored one about whether rats should be able to swim because you know in the real world rats can swim quite well. Yeah, um, they are notoriously good at getting everywhere. <laughs> yeah, and uh, you know we did so much with rats in Dishonored two. Like the, um, I think Jerome Charpenet is the programmer that worked on the swarm for fish and rats and the extra bones we had in the rats in the sequel and the extra AI. Of, so if you possess a rat and you're down with your little rat buddies, I mean it's it's just an amazing feature that is only like one part of the game for some players because only some players we'll even take possession. Into that power. Or, yeah. Or, yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> but it's, uh, you know, it's like you have to like draw the line somewhere. Like the, yeah, it's the mechanics that you could build a whole game around because mm-hmm. they're so good. But yeah. you have to just do them to a sort of extent where, okay, this has taken six months to do. Right. We've got well, a lot some of people would thing. argue that like if you – just did those mechanics you could go super deep on those mechanics and that that's cool that's a different yeah. game but uh yeah it's so. not this game where you can have multiple sort of tid- like you're you're not you're not essentially a master of something you're sort of a jack of all trades in lots of different areas and you can yep. focus in certain certain areas but speaking of games and speaking of final games and games you would take with you if you were going to a deserted island hobby you were chosen eight games to take with you to a deserted place in which we'll talk about a little bit. Um, and there's a very intriguing list. A lot of sort of, I think, games that sort of maybe have highlighted the, the type of games that you've made over your career as well. And I feel like there's very similar sort of the people you've worked with and um, people who've maybe come from studios that you've worked with as well. There's a couple of games in there as well. So I'm super excited to talk to you about the games that you've chosen because some of them I've never played. And What's funny before, is, uh, a bit before first my of all, time. Yeah, of course. But what's funny is that <laughs> some of them, I mean, it's hard to choose just eight. And I wasn't told, take to a, a deserted island. I was just told, pick eight games. And so <laughs> now that you say that, it contextualizes. And, and I wonder if I picked the right games, you know, like, ah, um, yes. It, it might be more tempting to, in that environment, it literally might be better to have something like, um, you know, Elite or... Um, yep. Civilization. Universes you can explore, civilization yeah, exa- where you can exactly. play multiple games. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yes. Well, you are going to be sent to a deserted island, unfortunately. So these eight okay. games you're going to take with you, mm-hmm. and you're going to have to enjoy for the next however many years you can survive on an okay. island. But I think it's about time we jump into talking about these eight games in the first game on your list then. So why don't we listen to some music from the first game, and let's talk about Harvey's final games.
So, Harvey, the first game on your list, then, is a game that was a, a little bit before my time. I was just a wee lad when this game came out back in 1992 for DOS Systems. It's part of the Ultima series, which is a series you worked on at some point with the director of the game, Richard Carrier, as well as uh, someone you'd work later with as a, who worked as a producer, which was Warren Spector, developed under the team, which was called Blue Sky Productions at the time, which then became Looking Glass Studios, very famous PC developers later. It is the first person role-playing action game that is Ultima Underworld. Harvey, why is this the first game that you're going to be taking with you? Yeah, so when Underworld came out, um, it's hard to put into words, but you know, there's there's music, and then there's that one album that like changes your life. You just listen to it over and over, and it's a very powerful emotional experience. I mean, there were plenty of games out at the time, like Wolfenstein that did first person or whatever. Yeah. There were RPGs that I had played, like uh, Wizardry or whatever. Um, but, and and I and I was a fan of the Ultima series. I guess uh, Ultima Seven is one of my favorite games. But there's something about Ultima Underworld, and it almost felt like the Ultima part was bolted onto it. It could have existed without that. It's the Underworld part that's most interesting to me, and that is that these guys, Doug Church and uh, the people that would eventually become Looking Glass, they had made uh, this very sealed environment that felt plausible, it felt lived in, and they tried to expand, whereas where some games laser focus on achieving your goals and doing them as fast as possible and as powerfully as possible they really tried to like expand the other stuff like wandering around um assessing the state of an entity in the distance like is that goblin hostile or friendly Uh, does he see me or not you know um what's actually going on here what if i dive in this river and follow where it goes through this cavern does it take me somewhere where i I don't have an objective to, to achieve, but maybe I can find something useful or something interesting. And I'm just like backtracking and exploring and try to map this place out in my head and sort of living there for a while. And um, it was really like, there had been single move at a time games like this before, like Dungeon Master, Blood Witch, Captive, uh, even Eye of the Beholder at some point in there. But the first smooth scrolling one that did all of that was Underworld. And it was electric the degree to which it uh got into my life and you know i moved i literally got out of the military and moved to austin texas in part because i knew that the people that had released the game were in austin origin and only when i got there did i realize oh but it was developed by a group in boston called eventually called looking glass yeah um but that said when i started at origin and i was working on various things like wing commander uh for the 3do i got the opportunity i saw that the looking glass guys had another game coming into test system shock and i went to my first boss uh, Kay gilmore and said what do i have to do to get on this project because i I just want to work on that and so i was only i only worked with those guys for like 10 months like we went through the floppy and the cd versions of system shock um but it was life-changing because the talking to doug church talking to those guys was just like a constant game design level up you know uh everything out of their mouths was like stuff that was common for them because they had gone some of them had gone to mit and they had been working on games for a while uh they constantly deconstructed board games and other video games all these guys like yeah. mark mark leblanc and 
Rob Fermier and Artman, um, certainly Doug and Warren and, and all the other guys around them, Paul Neurath. Um, but, oh, and Tim Stelmach, who's working on the new Underworld Ascension. You know, there were just all these really incredibly bright people <laughs> that had spent time thinking about it. So for me, who was kind of like level zero at the time, I it was very fast to gain experience, you know. And so, yeah. I was um, going to say, because it, it, it's a completely different time. If you imagine someone now playing like Dishonored and then actively seeking out Harvey Smith who made Dishonored and sort of inspired them with their favorite game and then coming to sort of learn everything they possibly could. It's a little more difficult these days, but <laughs> back in the day to be able to sort of take knowledge from, you know, Doug Church and Warren Spector and Richard Garriott and that kind of thing must have been incredible. I don't think I realized at the time how incredible it was. Um, I spent a lot of time probably being annoying you know, because like <laughs> with with Ultima 8, when it came out, I wasn't very happy with it. And I, I wrote up like a list of a 100 things that were wrong with it. I wasn't even assigned to the project. I was just, you know, halfway between the QA department and, and, and the production department at the time. Yeah. And and I sent an email to my boss and I said something about it being a slap in the face to Ultima fans. Oh, and my so, God. Yeah. So, uh, you know, the this balls. is the kind of thing that get gets people fired. Right. And so I. Yeah. I remember all, all working blacklisted at my desk. from a project. Yeah, I remember sitting at my desk working, and you know, I felt this like kind of shadow move past. And Richard Garriott was sitting on my desk. He was leaning on my desk, holding the printout of the hundred oh, things wrong God. with it. And so it was this amazing moment where I barely knew him at that point, and I'm quite fond of him. You know, obviously he's said over the Godfather of Austin Games and all that. But um, yeah, but he was holding it, and to Richard's credit, he was like how would you like to try to fix some of these things? And I was just like, oh, you're not going to fire me. You know, that, that kind of thing. Uh, and so me and a couple of programmers and a designer worked for a while on the patch that corrected a bunch of the things that, that we didn't like about Ultima 8. Yeah. It was a, a project under time pressure and other constraints. Um, the technology came together late. And um, Do you sort of have a little more forgiveness for them now, having worked on so many projects over the years to time constraints and stuff like that? Or were you still like, no, this was just not a good game at the time? No, I mean, I understand them. You know, like I've shipped games that needed more time for sure. Yeah. I've shipped games that deserve the ratings they got or whatever. But at the same time, at the end of the day, I fight for the user. You know, I think that the player's experience is what matters. Yeah. And so regardless of the face I put on for the public, when we do something wrong, we're talk we are all talking about it internally with a great deal of um, like intensity, you know, like we would like this to be fixed. We, yeah. we, we don't want to ship it this way or that way. It's important to us that what the player gets needs to be a great experience. And that doesn't yeah. mean it doesn't have bugs because all software has bugs in it. Anything that complex and that emergent is going to have something, you know, wrong with it, especially when you factor into how many combinations of hardware there are out there. But that said, even something that is like reputed to have problems that gives you an amazing experience. Like, like right now, all the guys in our office are excited about a, a variety of games. Um, some people are playing Fortnite. Some people are playing. I, I, I watch people playing The Witcher. You know, uh, there are people still going through the Fallout DLC because that's not made by us. And you know, the, all those things are exciting to us. And there's something wrong with all of those. There are people here who are super excited about player unknowns battle royale. And there's something wrong. You know, there's little janky things here and there. But it, 
yeah. at the end of the day, <laughs> the experience that it provides is yeah. so incredibly powerful that it doesn't matter, right? It's, it's it's all at the end of the day, what are you giving the player? You know? Exactly. And it's kind of strange that games like, you know, play unknown can sort of get a free pass because it's in early access and because it's kind of funny when things go wrong in that game. Like yeah. it's janky to a funny extent. But like AAA right. games don't get the same sort of pass. Um, even if a bug is funny, it's like, oh, this game's fucking buggy. Like obviously, I mean, you're sort of a, an umbrella Bethesda, but obviously the Bethesda guys you work on Fallout sort of get this every time they release a game, right? Bethesda's sort of open world bugs are notoriously famous for being funny, but pissing some people off as well and it's weird how we can sort of think like oh you know this is okay but this is not okay and for some reason that's just the way it is <laughs> yeah but i mean you know those games bethesda games are some of the most successful games in the world i'm in awe of those guys yeah. uh so people put hundreds and hundreds of hours into them um and love them for being charming and deep and interesting uh regardless if you you see something crazy once in a while, you know? Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. You know, and then there are people who their entire specialty is polish. And so like you play a blizzard game or you play the last of us or uncharted or whatever. And you just, it's breathtaking levels of, of like, <laughs> there the are studios out there together. that somehow yeah. do it. <laughs> yeah. You're like, how the fuck did these guys, especially blizzard, how blizzard continually have a, that weird blizzard polish where mm. just, it doesn't seem to be wrong at all. It's like perfectly carved glass. I don't know how it does it. Yeah, it's um, all about the decisions you make, you know, and the culture you set up <laughs> in the process. Exactly. Uh, one of the most amazing lessons for me across the last few years also is the difference between Diablo 3 when it came out and after the first major patch. Like, you know, I've said yes. before, but like roughly the same art and sound and systems and roughly the same, uh, probably the same lines of code. And yet, just by tuning, by changing values and costs and tweaking tweaking here and there, just by game tuning, uh, it's a radically better game after those patches. And yeah. I, I say that as a huge Diablo fan. I love the Diablo games. Um, yeah, it's, it's an amazing industry to be in because you're constantly balancing player expectation versus, you know, whoever's paying for the game, their expectations and uh, what you can achieve technologically, what you have time for, how deep you can go, um, unexpected problems in both personnel and in technology, you know, so it's uh, it's like mind-blowing. Excellent. Well, we're going to move on to the next game then, and we're going to talk about sort of one of the icons of the industry and sort of how first-person shooters blew up. So let's listen to some music from this next game, and let's dive straight into it.
So jumping into the second game now. But before we do that, Harvey, we have to talk about the deserted place in which we're going to send you. Because, I mean, it sounds pretty horrible being sent to a deserted island. But we get, we allow you to take eight games, so it can't be all that bad, right? It's, there's some sort of positive to it. So when we think about the deserted place we're going to send you, we allow you to choose where you're going to go. But it has to be from video games. It has to be a realm from video games. Obvious, the caveat is that it's going to be deserted. There's going to be no one there, so there's not going to be any NPCs who can help you out, no quest givers who can sort of get you off the island. It doesn't necessarily have to be an island. It just has to be a place from video games that is going to be deserted. But if you think about video games, they have sort of dangerous wildlife or monsters that maybe are not so friendly who aren't going to help you. So if you think of a place that has those kind of things, well, they're going to be there. So being sent to a deserted place from video games, is there anywhere that sort of springs to mind immediately that you wouldn't mind chilling for the next few years playing eight games? Wow. That's an interesting question. Um, <clears throat> you mean it has to be a, a tropical island? No, it doesn't right? have to be. It, uh, it's a deserted place. We we try to refrain from using deserted island too much. We oh, okay. tend to say deserted place. So it can be anywhere from video games. I see. Yeah, I don't know. Um, it's tempting to want worlds. a cabin from Red Dead Redemption out in the middle of the woods or whatever with an overlook of the fields of grain you know the early 1860s america as envisioned by the hauser <laughs> brothers uh those connoisseurs of american pop culture <laughs> so shall we say shall we send you to a deserted cabin yeah in in the west uh-huh. sort of we'll give you a horse as well because i mean it's not much fun to be a cowboy without a horse <laughs> so we'll t- we'll we'll allow you to go there also because you know Everyone can sort of help you out. There's not going to be any sort of dangerous things, unless you consider the, z- the zombie DLC to be of a danger. But mm. I won't. We won't worry about that. <laughs> so we're going to send you to sort of the the Midwest in Red Dead Redemption to have a nice little cabin. And in your cabin, you're going to be playing, of course, you're going to be playing Ultimate Underworld. But the next games you're going to be playing, and I say games, is because you've sort of sneakily done this under the the caveat that both games are important, and that's a. Uh, sort of id software's sort of masterpiece that came out in 1993 only a year after ultimate underworld talking of first person games sort of you know designed by john romero america mcgee john carmack and all those wonderful sort of pc juggernauts of the industry is of course doom one and doom two harvey why are the next games you're taking with you so technically you're taking nine games doom one and two <laughs> yeah as i said Doom 1 is probably the most impact in terms of um, emotional stuff, right? Because I had played Wolfenstein before, but when Doom came out, there was just nothing like it. Um, <clears throat> the feel of the weapons, the level design, and frankly, the sound design was just so incredibly good. Um, the creatures having slightly different mechanics that just made this like little combat, um, you know, little combat dance where like. You know, you know what the imp's gonna do. Uh, you know, you know what this weapon's gonna do versus this distance, and uh, yeah. just an amazing suite of things. So emotionally, that was very powerful when it came out. And then Doom Two came out, and it was the more polished version. It's a better game objectively, but if you because yeah, play... no one really talks about Doom Two, it, mm-hmm. it sort of gets left by the wayside when <laughs> anyone ever talks about Doom. It's always Doom One and how. Blah, like, fucking hell, this is amazing. And then Doom 2, 
was more polished, but doesn't get talked about. Yeah. And so the the other powerful thing about that is I think I was at Origin already and we would stay late after hours and, and be in kind of the cubicle farms and we were on the local network, right? So like before people were having LAN parties, we were experiencing that kind of thing and we, yeah. we knew that this was like coming because it was like so powerful. You and three other people sitting there, the difficulty cranked to maximum, it's midnight, Every nobody's wearing headphones because people are just blasting shit and screaming at the top of their lungs. <laughs> and it was that way for Doom, and it was that way for Quake and for other games like Descent along the way. Those those multiplayer experiences are so powerful. Even if it's not what I'm really into, it's not the intimate, slow, quiet thing, there are moments when I'm just like so pumped to... Uh, I haven't spent much time in Player Unknown's Battle Royale, but I watch over people's shoulder here, and the crazy stuff that happens is just such a pleasure to watch. But so I, I think the multiplayer component is probably the co-op multiplayer component is probably a huge reason why Doom is also powerful. But like I said, the sound design—it's. Uh... I was going to say because going to a deserted place where it's just going to be you by yourself, <laughs> this is going to be a sort of one of those. Hmm, would I have chosen this? Known? Yeah. I was being sent to a deserted place. Is it still going to be something of value, though? Like, when you talk about that sign design, obviously you're not harking on too much about the sort of multiplayer being the the huge aspect of it, but at the time being like, this is the future. But, like, thinking about it now, if you play it, you're like, that soundtrack, the, those sounds, they're going to, while I'm sat in my cabin, blasting, <laughs> blasting shit, as you said, those are the things that you're going to be thinking, yeah, this was the right choice. What yeah, about like that, that changes the context a lot? Like in in the eighteen sixties, would I even have a computer? You know, like am I just going to be worry. sitting there in a cabin? Literally, don't worry about the technicality. We'll, <laughs> okay, I'll sort okay. everything out for you. You just you just choose the games, and we'll, we'll be fine. <laughs> so this is more like a simulation, like Westworld or something. Yeah, kind of similar. Yeah. yeah, if we want to put it like that, I'm sort of the everyone sort of refers to me as the dungeon master, but uh-huh, okay, out of because you know we have. This is the 64th episode now, so we have 64 games industry people who are all sort of now floating in strange deserted places uh, in some alternate universe somewhere. Yeah. We have like Steve Gaynor floating around somewhere, and uh, yeah. <laughs> we have like John Viganocci over somewhere else, and just every <laughs> everyone is floating around. So we're going to be sending you to a cabin to blast Doom very yeah. loudly, and there's not going to be anyone there for you to annoy, so you can blast that soundtrack as loud as you want. What about like the most recent Doom then? Did you play that? Yeah, it's pretty incredible to watch that team. Um, there was kind of a major cultural shift at, at id, and they had the super daunting challenge of making the new Doom, right? Like, what is it? Yeah. Is it? Is it really, are you remembering Quake because it was 3D and you could jump and stuff and bounce things around corners? Or... Is it Doom 1 or is it Doom 2? Um, you know, what uh, is it Doom 3 with the monster closets and the flashlight? And uh, So they had to decide, like, they had to decide, like, what do we mean when we say Doom? And what they did just feels like the purest expression. Uh, it's super fast. Uh, it has some clever little tweaks in how you power up, uh, clever little ideas in how you power up. The creatures are just beautiful. The sound design is once again amazing. So uh, those guys just 
brought Doom back, in my opinion. And I, I was not a fan of Doom 3, so yeah. um, uh, they did something beautiful with the, the new Doom. Excellent. Well, speaking of first-person shooters, then, I think it's about time we talk about the next game, then. And uh, I think in recent times, this has become sort of the highlight. Talking about Doom being the sort of start of first-person shooters, like, blowing up. Obviously, it wasn't the first, but if we talk about modern sort of FPS action games, not so much like Call of Duty, but more to that Doom-centric sort of feel, I think this next game definitely highlights that. So let's listen to some really wonderful music from Gary Schumann, composer of this next game. And let's, of course, dive straight into it. So jumping into the next game then on your list, Harvey, and the next game originally came out in August of 2007. I can't believe it's been 10 years this month since this game came out and since the would you kindly massive reveal sort of to the world came out. Ugh, I'm getting old. <laughs> you're, like, you're smiling at me with like, no, you're not. <laughs> yeah, you're not old. Come on. <laughs> Developed by 2K Boston and 2K Games. Directed, of course, by Ken Levine. It came out on the Xbox 360, the PS3, the PC, and has had been remastered for PlayStation 4 as well in the collection and stuff like that. It is the first-person shooter game that just blew everyone out of the water at the time. It is of course, Bioshock. Harvey. Why is Bioshock yeah. the next game on your list? Oh, Bioshock is such a a watershed moment. You know, um, there are people all across the industry that I'm constantly seeing or hearing about uh, that I would like more time with. Some of whom I've got to spend some time with, you know, but I would love to yeah. collaborate with. You know, there's Tom Francis is an amazing guy. If you just listening to him talk about games is like listening to Martin Scorsese talk about film or whatever. Alicia Lidecker is a person who gave a speech recently that is kind of like the best example ever of a speech I've given and a few other people have given, which is about systemic uh, game design and how to create second-order consequences for the player. Uh, yeah. There are all these people that like I, I only know at a distance or because we hung out, like in Tom's case, at a, at a conference one time and talked a few times, and we had dinner one night. That I would love to work closer with. Well, there's, I, I feel that way about Ken because we bumped into each other off and on over the years. We've exchanged messages, uh, but like in terms of people who are just like super smart and pivotal, and who I wish that I had more opportunity to spend time around. Uh, wow, that guy, he's one of them. Uh, it was weird I, because you guys sort of almost yeah, came together, right. and. You know, you yeah. sort of started a little earlier than Ken, and then Ken obviously went on with Looking Glass and working with like Doug Church and 
those guys and stuff like that and you sort of went the other way and you went like yeah. Iron Storm to do like Deus Ex and stuff like that um, it's almost almost yeah. working together but like I think Ken probably has like a deeper richer creative education than I do um, and it, it's just fascinating to, to look at what he's done and listen to him talk about about games um, because he's also I think he worked on the Thief series he worked on SWAT um, yeah you know, so he's he's done more than Bioshock, um, and I and I say that as a huge fan of Bioshock one and two, and I wasn't such a fan of Infinite. Uh, I don't know why it didn't grab me as much. It was more of a shooter, I guess. But that said, no matter what else, um, uh, Bioshock one remains just this beautiful thing, and it's not just Ken, of course. It's the level designers and the artists and the sound, uh, the music that was chosen. Like it's just such a and and I don't know the details any better than anybody else, but from what I understand, a lot of that came together like halfway through the project, as it so often does, the underwater city and um, this kind of uh, expose of failed libertarian utopia thinking or whatever. But yeah, the, I mean, the fact that it starts so beautifully and so somberly deep under the water with this beautiful architecture and with this sad note, like I think one of the first audio logs you play is a woman who's been stood up on New Year's Eve. And, you know, holidays give things a special resonance as well. You know, it, it reminds <laughs> me in a way of The Shining. You know, like big parties with huge expectations that inevitably let people down. Um, notes of sadness, but uh, everybody's putting on a brave smile and the moment is captured in this photograph from that year, you know. And... Um, Bioshock feels kind of like that to me, like this moment in time. You're, you're there after the good moment, you know, after yeah. the, the Gilded Age, the big party. Uh, you're there when it's all a mess and it's it's leaking and about to implode. Like Collapse, how much yeah. how much longer could Rapture have left uh, lasted even if I didn't show up there? Right? It already had sprung huge leaks and everybody inside was insane. And so it's just such a powerful cultural like artifact the same way the sims is or the same way um thelma and louise is or the same way you know uh winter's bone the novel is you know it's like every every so often something comes along that's just like this amazing thing that some group of people or some person has created and it is weird because going back to sort of what we talked about at the start in terms of like what only games can do and you talk about 3d spaces you can explore everyone thinks of bioshock it's like Rapture immediately just Rapture as a place is why obviously Bioshock the the shooting's great the powers are great and uh, the story is fantastic but you know every time it's like when people saw the highlight of Rapture in Infinite like there's that little moment where you sort of towards the end of the game you sort of go back to Rapture and it's like everyone's like that's the best part of the game and why it's because it's Rapture and it invokes all of these feelings like a, a, of being in a place that's familiar to you that you've explored a lot and um, just that you have in your memory. It is one of those. Yeah, but again, the, the I agree with you, but again, the music, uh, come to think of it, and the mm. sound design, the ambience of the rooms is so powerful there because when I think about Rapture, I think about that. But you know what? The game mechanics also stick out in my mind, and it's probably why like Bioshock 1 and 2 more than Bioshock Infinite uh, because like a huge part of that experience is... In the same way, in Thief, you put out lights to gain mastery over little regions, because in the dark, Garrett is very powerful. Yeah. 
and in the light he's vulnerable he's Uh, weak (laughs) yeah he's weak and so in bioshock you like hack a security system take over a turret uh you know take over the little flying robots or whatever and suddenly you feel like you really own this area even if it's filled with crazy splicers and traps and you can kind of wander around now with impunity or close as close to it as you can get in in bioshock uh because you've like claimed that area uh, game mechanically and i i really found yeah. that shift one of the most powerful things in the game one thing actually asking you as a designer of a game where you give the player all of these incredible powers and it's funny because in especially when you think of a game like bioshock and thief there's a little element of stealth and sort of taking it slowly Bioshock, maybe not so much, but you still have to... You're still sort of scared of the enemies. Like, the splice is still... They're erratic, and they're kind of crazy, and they make you freak out a little bit. And then, you know, guards and stuff like that in Dishonored personally make me freak out because I don't want to be spied, and I want my A rank anyway. How do you sort of balance giving the player all of these fucking amazing powers without being like, oh, I'm just a god. I'm just this incredible being that can do anything. There is definitely a sense of balance in games like Bioshock and Dishonored where I'm still nervous and scared even though I am this almost omnipotent, powerful being. How do you sort of balance that? Yeah, I guess it's just a trade-off, you know, like, and it's influenced by many things, right? Like when we were working on Dishonored 1, one of the things Raph and I said was, well, against one guard, you should be, you should always win. You should be very powerful. Against two should probably almost always win, but, like, it's a little more challenge. You might lose a little health. You've got to think a little bit. Against three or four, you might want to consider using your powers or retreating, and you might and you might lose a lot of health in that, in that fight. Uh, and five should just be, like, holy shit, be careful. Use, use it, burn up a major power. <laughs> stop time. You're going to take some health. Drink a potion. Um, and it is that way because... Given the world and the scope and the complexity of the characters and all, it was hard in, during Dishonored 1 to get more than a certain number of characters on screen at once and to deal with them. They're thinking, they're hearing, they're pathfinding. If someone's on the other side of the building and they hear a gunshot, then they start thinking about the best way to get there and what that means. And, um, you know, they react. They're actual AIs. And uh, that has a cost. People always think about the rendering cost, but or the map size cost, but actually mm-hmm. the AI and the sound design and the sound portals and, and the sound propagation and the physics and all of that is actually a cost as well, of course. And um, so, you know, you can make a different game where, oh, against 30 enemies, the player has no problem, but against 100, wow, that's that's a problem. And so, you know, there's many factors that go into, like, deciding when the game is challenging or not. Um... um you know, and the the point of different games is different, right? Like yeah. when you play, um, when you play Diablo is a good example. Perhaps you're almost never really challenged until you reach a certain level of play. Like I yeah. started a new game when the Necromancer came out, so I bought the Necromancer DLC and started playing it. And as an experiment um, for tuning, I just said I'm not going to spend any points. Or equip any items. I'll strip naked, and I'm not going to strip any equip any items, <laughs> or spend any points toward any spells or anything like that, and see how far I can play. 
And I just played all the way to level 7 and, and was having no trouble. But I was on normal difficulty. So then I put it on, like, whatever it's called, uh, Torment 4 or whatever is, like, the most, I think, the highest Bit level of a that I've played to. <laughs> yeah. And I was just getting completely owned. I couldn't play at all. I couldn't damage the monsters, right? And I was dying over and over. And so I started equipping items. And it's and I, just items that I found or that I got in the shops. Not even great items. Just like, let me run back to the store and buy buy a handful of gold items or whatever. Yeah. And then I was able to like, oh, it's taking me three or four hits to kill most monsters. This feels about right somehow. It's, it's like Blizzard is amazing at tuning difficulty. But the point of Dishonored, obvious, or I mean, the point of uh, Diablo, obviously, is to make you feel powerful and let you chew through lots of monsters on your way somewhere. Um, and the scale is just totally different, right? So what threatens you in that game should be like a higher difficulty level or a situation where your health is low or a situation where you're facing one of the major chapter bosses or whatever. Yeah. Uh, it's just different aesthetic goals than, than other games have. And, and I think all of that factors into the decisions you make to tune the game one way or the other. Well, speaking of games then that require the player to maybe think a little bit about how they approach things is a game you've already mentioned, and it's the next game on your list as well. A game about sneaking around in the dark as a character called Garrett. So why don't we listen to some music from this next game, and let's dive straight into it. So speaking of games made by Ken Levine, or at least worked on by Ken Levine, and also Looking Glass Studios, the next game is a game developed by said people and published by Eidos Interactive, released back on the PC in 1998. It was one of the sort of standout stealth titles of the time, and I think the genesis of this series has moved so much and inspired so many stealth games after it, and just games in general in terms of like designing you know, that sense of place and how the player approaches sort of gameplay in a sense this is of, of course the 1998 first person stealth game thief the dark project harvey why is the next game thief you know in terms of um giving the player feedback about what the ai was about to do through voice lines uh in terms of using lighting for mood in terms of using sound design for mood in terms of presenting the player with an underpowered character and making them solve problems more cleverly, uh, using stealth view cones and things like that, sound propagation. Oh, I made a sound. Somebody heard it. Thief was just revolutionary. You know, it was just amazing. Um, and I know the project went through many different permutations. You know, it was Dark Camelot initially, and yeah. all kinds of different things. And I, I know <laughs> even people on the team at the time were like, why do we have to call it Thief? You know, someone might 
wait for a ranger or wizard. But um, it, Thief was totally the right call, and it, it, it packaged the whole thing together. And this mysterious place called the city with gang, uh, weird organizations like the Keepers and Garrett, this figure of cynicism and uh, experience. You know, he was, was like a master thief. Uh, with a very jaded voice. Stephen Russell did the voice and eventually did the voice for Corvo as well. Um, it was just revolutionary and so moody and so made you sit at the edge of your chair because of what might happen. Every little sound you were analyzing, you were so engaged playing Thief. And part of it was the world so fascinating. Part of it was you're so vulnerable. Part of it was there were so many sensory inputs coming in that you had to deal with. Um, and it was very slow, so it, it the pace of it gave you time to process all that. Um, yeah, Thief was amazing. And I want to say that while we were working on Deus Ex, I want to say Thief came out and System Shock 2 came out and Half-Life came out. And those were such <laughs> powerful influences. That there was such a like master class in how to do cool games that you know we constantly absorb things from those games as we were working on deus ex yeah thief thief was pivotal for us for it must sure. be weird because you must be sitting there thinking holy fuck these games are great like look at what these other studios are doing fucking oh my god these games are just blowing us out of the way and then to be like oh now we have to release our game and you release deus ex and it's just it's put in the same bracket as those games mm. must have been pretty special as well like oh, yeah whew, we nailed it <laughs> well i don't think we felt that way um raf rafael colantonio is texting me he's uh he's having a party tonight and uh so we're gonna have dinner um <laughs> but um uh yeah i mean i remember when we finished deus ex and i was standing in warren's office and i spent as much time in warren's office talking about game design uh as i did laying on the couch like he was my therapist or whatever you know it it, we, it was a very <laughs> powerful relationship you know we we spent a lot of time together um but i remember us talking about it and i mean it's a long time ago so it's hard to remember the details but i do specifically remember this moment where he and i were both lamenting that the game wasn't better and uh we were just thinking well we got extra time and that made all the difference we got like six more months and that made all the difference in the world but we were both just thinking, like, you know, if we just had a little more time, or if this had come together, that had come together, or we'd made this cut earlier. And we, we both had the sense, like, I hope people get something out of it, because we love it, but we know that it's janky in a few areas, and it, it could be better. We have no idea how people will react to it, you know. And so then we yeah. released the game, and this steady stream of people telling us that it had was magic in their lives you know that they were having these experiences that that were mind-blowing for them and that they loved it they loved the experience and that they were powering up in different ways and it was pretty life-changing for both of us i think you know and for the whole team really to be able to I was point say, back i was gonna say though like working on games even if they're good or bad you still always think this stuff you can do better and I mean, yeah. you obviously get the sense of this is some, we've got something here. Like this is this is really good. And then other games that are like, yeah, well, this is probably gonna not do so well. But you know, hearing you speak about Deus Ex, being like, ah, you know, the stuff we could have done, isn't that like every project though? <laughs> yeah, for sure, 
for sure. Uh, it's just that my point is like we were not confident that we had made a great game or anything like ah, that okay. when we shipped. We were we were quite nervous about it, you know. So just being the relief because even now yeah. we you know people it's not like it was like a highlight that year. It's like even now people are still like Deus Ex. One of it. I mean, we're talking on a show where Deus Ex has been chosen. I don't know, like five times to on this show. So it sits in that bracket of you know getting off uh 17 years later people are like no it's still one of the best pc games of all time so it wasn't even just like good that year it was like good forever <laughs> so i think yeah, you accomplished your mission <laughs> that's that's nice to hear but again we're talking about it like we we were you know earlier uh it's the people you remember and the little anecdotes and i work with some yeah. of the same level designers now who worked on prey and dishonored that worked on uh deus ex but i i, I just was as you were talking, I was remembering Austin Grossman, who worked on System Shock and Dishonored and Dishonored 2 and Deus Ex. Um, we were sitting all in this pit, and I was looking through a sniper rifle at one of the kids in Deus Ex who was walking down the dock. And normally what you could do at that time was you could go to him and say, Hey kid, tell me who's been going in and out of here. And he's like, I'll tell you. I even know their code if you'll give me some cigarettes. And I think by the end of the game, we had to change cigarettes to, like, candy bars or whatever. Um, <laughs> but we called him Cigarette Kid at the time, you know. And so, like, I was looking through the sniper rifle, and I was like, normally I go talk to Cigarette Kid, and I give him some smokes in exchange for the code, but I'm just going to kill him. And so I pulled the trigger on the sniper rifle, and, like, boom, he died. And Austin began, like, in this very Austin Grossman signature way, composing a letter like to the kid's parents or whatever, you know, dear Mr. and Mrs. Cigarette Kid, we regret to inform you. And it's just like very signature Austin humor. And I was laughing my ass off. And then I was later, I was recently telling that story. And I, I remember saying something like, you know, not that shooting kids in games is good, obviously. I mean, it's horrible, obviously. But like... Well, if they're annoying, you know. <laughs> but like there was a moment where you could still just put kids in games. And if the monsters ate them or whatever, the monsters ate them. And it, it's it's kind of like we've balderized. Yeah, know, it's weird. Like the one that makes me think is Fallout because Fallout, especially Fallout 3, had a lot of kids in it and you couldn't kill them. Like that was the thing. It was like you could kill everyone in the game but yeah. the kids. And it, 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 I mean, it made sense but also didn't make sense because you can literally kill everyone in the game. Yeah. Every NPC, every everyone. But I mean, in a, in a way, it's, it's like having a fairy tale where the where the wolf can't eat the little girl or whatever. You know, it's uh, yeah. And I don't know exactly how I feel about it. Like I, I know how I feel about killing you know, kids. Yeah, I mean, of course. We're not gonna but paint, I, we're not gonna portray you in yeah, any like other. <laughs> thank you, thank you. But 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 honestly, I don't want my fairy tales not to have monsters in them, uh, because well, the point of fairy tales is yeah, to to toy with monsters. You know, to to know that monsters exist. I don't know. It gives you something to protect or work towards saving, and it fleshes out the world to be like, oh shit, this, especially like in a world like Dishonored, which is, you know, not a nice place to live. Like, you don't want to live in that world, really. And that would be the kind of world where kids would die. Like, no questions asked, right? Whether they would die of poverty or being killed by a guard just for like stealing some cigarettes or something like that. Like, that's the kind of thing that makes your world feel more horrible or gives the player a sense of this is not a this is a nasty place this is not a great place but speaking yeah. of very nice places 
Um, we're going to talk about the next game, which is a, a you know, it's a place that you'll know quite well because you're about to embark on living there forever. Um, the, this world. And it's by a studio I used to work for. So I'm always interested to hear what people have to say. So let's listen to some incredible music from Jose Gonzalez from the soundtrack to this next game. And let's talk about it. now to the next game and we're going to start talking about some cowboys and living in a cabin with some cowboys or in your case no one at all because <laughs> it's going to be deserted but this next game was released back in may of 2010 it's getting ready for a sequel that's unfortunately delayed until next year it is of course released by rockstar games and developed and produced by the house brothers and rockstar san diego the other side of rockstar is the western action adventure game that is red dead redemption harvey You've chosen the nice little cabin to be cooped up in playing these games, but why are you going to be taking Red Dead Redemption? I don't know. I mean, I love spaghetti westerns. I grew up on that stuff. I was, I am old, and I was a kid in the 70s. <laughs> and I remember, like, you know, Sergio Leone and the music by Ennio Morricone and all of his films, which I think were shot in Spain or Italy, weren't they? I, I guess most of them in Italy, but some of them... In, in Spain, that's why they're called spaghetti westerns, maybe. But um, um, I believe that is exactly why they're called that. Or maybe it's yeah, maybe it's just that the uh, Sergio Leone worked on them. I don't, I don't yeah. know, but um, I should know that. But um, I grew up on that stuff, and I loved it, and I loved characters that were not black and white, um, and I loved the presentation of the world as kind of a dark, inherently dark place. Yeah. Um, it, aligns with my experience that you have to work against that constantly the world is not inherently like a you know a disney setting um and so the game is so true to that and those guys are so good at like looking at american pop culture or film and like um you know like satirizing it or reproducing it whether you however you see their work um, and I really like the character John Marston, I guess, or Marston. Yeah. It's funny, I, I'll always remember writing on my application to work at Rockstar back in the day. And then the, one of the questions was, who is your favorite video game character? And obviously I could be like, oh, you know, John Marston. But it truly was at the time because I think I'd just finished playing Red Dead. John Bootlicker. He was amazing. He was yeah. an incredible character. And I, I was so tempted to it write was. John Marston. I didn't, I think, luckily. I mean, there's probably... an example of where the facial animation and the voice acting together 
and the lines combine to be this like I mean there are problems in Red Dead there are things I deeply regret um, choices that I didn't get to make you know that where the plot missions took me in, in ways I would not have acted you know yeah um, but the the quiet moments when you're alone you're trying to break a horse or riding a horse or your horse gets killed by cougars you know like um, <laughs> I, I think it already would have been in like my very good video games for the year list because of all that stuff. But yeah. then the ending from the moment <sighs> you're told you get to go home and you follow this incredibly long trail and the song plays and it plays to its entirety. And then you're like living back with your wife and child. And you, you can't believe that time is passing and the kids growing up and you're like, wait, I thought the game was ending. What's it's this is a farm simulator now. Like, and then the transition <laughs> to the, the ending and then the actual ending like, just, I, I mean, it's a seven-year limit on spoilers, I guess. But, like, playing as his son at the end, you know, it's just like... Yeah, I went back revenge. recently, and, yeah, I went back recently and watched that sequence again on YouTube. And it's just my favorite video game ending of all time, probably. It's incredible. It's incredible. I think I, I, saw, it, I saw it in, like, a video recently as well. Like, it was, like... Uh, you know one of those top 10 listers like endings that destroyed us or blah 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 and it's like i restarted that section so like because i thought i thought oh i'm failing like that was my only criticism of that that one yeah you thought you were you could win the fight yeah Yeah. because you could do the you could do the Uh dead eye so you you could like and i was like why the fuck can't i like shoot everyone (laughs) like what is going on i'm john's not gonna die of course he's not gonna die in that die. same way that um, you could not possibly appreciate that ending unless you played all the way through the game, right? You couldn't yeah. be somebody who never played the game and just go watch it. You'd be like, dude, what is this? Uh, I, I One of my favorite shows of all time is Six Feet Under, and that has the best ending of any TV show ever, in my opinion. And like, But when you tell somebody that, they're tempted to go to YouTube and just watch it, and it will just be meaningless. They'll be like, what, what did I just watch? It doesn't you know? make any sense, yeah. And so it's just, I think the powerful ending and the resolution of that game it elevated the whole game red dead redemption to to a completely new category where like you know it's hard to end a game without disappointing players honestly everyone talks about this problem because if they like playing the game they kind of don't want the game to end yeah and um inherently i'm incredibly the opposite i'm strangely weird where you want i don't have i want the game to end i hear that Uh, a lot lot yeah but but like you've gotten more and more powerful over time and you've done the same actions over and over until you've mastered them. And so yeah. then what do you do for the ending? Do you just build an ending out of like the core systems? Okay, well, sneak around the guard, take the key off his belt, choke him out or whatever, and yeah, you won. But that would be yeah. incredibly difficult or disappointing. Or or do you like do something completely new with new systems, and new th- in which case you probably don't have time for that, but also the player has to relearn everything and that's mm. that's also hard. It's a really difficult problem. It's weird to balance games. it between being like a win state because it's a yeah. game, like it's a game you want to win. But like in yeah. the case of Red Dead Redemption, you've spent the whole game keeping John alive, keeping him out from the away from the law and stuff like that. And then yeah. the game kills him anyway. And it's like, yeah. well, well, but then that's uh-huh. the story ending, isn't it? It's not the game winning the game ending. It's right. it's weird to balance that win state against stuff like that. Yep. We're talking about games that you need to win states in because we're... You're a very busy man, so we're going to have to press on a bit faster. Um, let's talk about the next game, which is a series I've recently come to very much enjoy playing, especially last year with the most recent. So let's jump into the next game by listening to some wonderful music, and let's talk about it. 
So talking about the next game on your list, Harvey, uh, originally you had written down just XCOM. And uh, I think that's because you were thinking about the sort of original, the UFO, Enemy Unknown, which was known in Europe and that kind of thing. Um, but then when we started talking about it a little more, we, you were thinking, oh, well, if I was going to go to an island, I'd want to take the most recent game because, you know, polish and playability and all that kind of stuff. Um, but we'll, let's just in general talk about the series then and the sort of feelings that it evokes. The next game, um, if we're talking about the most recent version, was uh, the sequel to Enemy Unknown that was released by Firaxis Games. It released back in February of last year. God, it's been a year of playing this game already. It's, of course, XCOM 2. But the series as a whole, XCOM, Harvey, you wanted to talk about. Why is sort of let's say you're going to take XCOM 2 and the original game nice little bundle together why, why are you taking XCOM with you yeah I mean I remember when XCOM came out and it was like such an interface to master like it in, <laughs> internal with my friends it gave rise to the term British interface uh, you know where like so many games of the time that were brilliant had just such a crazy-ass non-standard interface where you're, like, <laughs> counting movement units and, and all of that, you know. Like, but um, So it was very hard to play, but the atmosphere of it, and again, I think it came down to the fact that the game used a lighting model. And my favorite thing about the game, and a stealth model, I mean, the, the, my favorite thing about the game, I mean, there's many things I love about it, but, like, in the original, you didn't get a draw update on the screen unless you had a guy looking in that direction. Um, and so it was like an unintentional fog of war. Yeah. And, well, I think it was pretty intentional, probably. You needed light there, and you needed somebody looking in that direction. So oh, you okay, needed to yeah. deploy your squad and have them take different facing positions. And if you didn't, then suddenly, you know, you'd have this moment where you used your last movement turn to turn... And suddenly you see this like very powerful alien standing behind your favorite soldier or whatever. And you're like, well, my turn's over and now I'm fucked. Um, I'm absolutely fucked. And, you know, the, the game did the procedural thing with names and faces and stuff. So you had the sense of like male and female ca uh, characters of a variety of ethnic backgrounds uh, very early on. And, and you really got emotionally invested in them. If it randomly chose two people with the same last name, you could assume they were brothers or married couple, or, you know, and that made death for one of them really more poignant. <coughs> it had a very powerful positive feedback loop in it. It's normally a bad thing, because if you started to lose, you really started to lose more and more. If you lost a high-level soldier, the impact was terrible, because you replaced him with a rookie, and, you know, you had to build up and build up. Any anyway, the original was so powerful. That mood, that lighting, that stealth model, um, the, the named characters and how they how they felt to play with them and interact with them, but um, and how you invested in them over time. But the new one, the the new game, I mean, both of the new games are cool, but, like, the most recent one um, turns the whole thing on its head. The the Earth's already been conquered, and you're part of the Resistance trying to... Yeah, you're and I thought that, group. That context works a lot better. Um, and given the politics of the world today, you know, it feels like for a long time we were threatened hey, warning, things might get bad, things might get bad. And now it's like, wow, things are really bad. How do we fight our way out of this or whatever? It's almost like perfect timing for the uh, yeah. for that for that game. But um, anyway, yeah, I, I, I just love the, the series. So 
In terms of like to- talking about the the deserted place setting and being in your cabin, this is that kind of game that you know, especially the most modern versions, randomly generated. The I think with XCOM two as well, each time, even though the mission might be the same, the map is auto generated every single time. So you're gonna have endless maps to play, endless soldiers to make brothers and sisters and family members who are all going to die. You can do your Iron Man mode. So this is the kind of game that when looking towards like a deserted place, you're like, yeah, this is the kind of game I'd want. Yeah, Lots Mr. Of, Civilization. You could just keep playing it again and again. Yeah, yeah. just replayability like, and that feedback loop as well. Just, oh, just one more turn. Just mm-hmm. one more. See how it's going to go. See how it's going to yeah. go. <laughs> and it's such a brilliant series. And also... I guess you're close enough to the the new DLC that's coming out at the end of this month as well for the the XCOM 2, so we'll we'll allow you to take that as well, so you can have that too. <laughs> okay, excellent. <laughs> but we're going to move on to the second to last game then on your list, and I think it's a game you'll know all too well, because I believe you're a QA lead on this next game. Mm. Um, so let's listen to some very good music from this next game, and let's dive straight into it. Moving on to the second to last game on your list then, Harvey. This game was developed by Looking Glass Studios, or Technologies, I think you guys called it at the time, um, published by Origin Systems, who you were working for, directed by Doug Church, and also produced by Warren Spector, two people you'll know very well. Released back in 1994, sort of the start of your career, it is the first-person action role-playing game that is still beloved today. Still, the box art creeps me out. It's System Shock. Harvey. Mm -hmm. Why are you going to be taking System Shock with you? Yeah, System Shock was one of those games where, um, again, I was just a tester on the project and lead tester by the end. But uh, the last month of the project, Doug and a guy named James Fleming sat in my cubicle at Origin because they were working on VR headset stuff. We We supported two VR headsets. But it was just like such a powerful game because it was, I think it was like, one of the first games I played that was like literature as game. Like Citadel Station is so well realized and is so steeped in illusions, both overt and also just uh, conceptual. And cyberpunk was a thing at the time. You know, the idea of some sort of like cowboy hacker who was like against all odds, representing human resistance against the monolithic corporate capitalist forces that were dehumanizing everybody around them um and uh it's just a beautiful thing you know because it's true to all of that it's true to cyberpunk it's it's 
full of literary allusions. Everybody always talks about the first code of the door being 0451 in Immersive Sims, and it's like obviously a reference to Fahrenheit 451. There's yeah. just layers and layers and layers of, of, of allusions in the game to science fiction works. So it's like a labor of love for that team, you know, and uh, uh, an attempt to do a dungeon basically without hobbits and stuff. And there was just so many <laughs> crazy moments that could happen. You know, you turn on your like rear view mirror eyes and you're like hover skates and take some drugs and zip down the hall shooting at some robot welder that uh, welding machine that's trying to kill you while this like crazy ass music plays or whatever. And it was um, just amazing. And it, it's also the first game I think where I saw like a ball of light, the EMP gun particle discharge bounce down a hallway and around the corner of this very faceted uh, polygonal hallway with light going with it, right? So the, so the hall's dark and like the ball oh, lights up the, the hall as it goes it. and it bounces around the corner. And, you know, those convergences of like physics and lighting uh, and gameplay like are pretty common now and no big deal. But I remember just that being a magical moment for me, an enchanting moment as I fired down the hall and, and, and watched the light move. Um, you know, it's just many in many ways, uh, and also Shodan's such a memorable character. Yeah, Shodan's um, the one that stands out, I think, for most yeah. people, especially like the first game and the second as well. Um, in terms of like working on the game, then I know from being a tester that <laughs> games that you work on as a tester, after a while, you probably never want to play them again. And I mean, we're talking, you know, twenty plus years later now from when you were beating your head against every wall in that game, trying to break every bug. But looking towards, you know, sitting in a cabin on your own, playing it for the rest of your days, are you going to be reliving those tested days, trying to find every bug, or are you going to just sort of just enjoy it now and again? Yeah, I mean, the first thing you'd have to do is relearn the interface, because it, it like, came from a time before standardized interfaces. And I think to crouch, you literally had to reach up and grab a... There's a little iconic character at the top of the screen. You had to grab that character and pull them down a little bit in this box so they were physically crouched. (laughs) And that's how you crouched with the mouse. Uh, We didn't, you know, we just hadn't figured. You move the mouse to the edge of the screen and the cursor would become like a little arrow and you push the mouse button and it would slowly rotate you like a tank or whatever. It's just like so different than, than modern games. So that would be the first thing is I would have to master the UI. (laughs) <laughs> uh, but yeah, Citadel Station never got old for us. It's one of those games. I mean, a few games, uh, the Dishonored games and Deus Ex and, and, and just testing System Shock, like that we just played over and over, and we all talked about our experiences. Like It was very common in the Deus Ex project for the level designers to stop what they were doing and all listen to somebody's story as they said, I had this combination of powers, I did this combination of approach, I was in this location... The creatures that had come into the area were this these this set. This thing happened, and I couldn't believe it. And, you know, you play DSX, you'll still get that. And you get some of that in System Shock as well. Yeah. Um, and it's it's systems acting on the player and the player acting on systems and uh, producing this thing. I mean, games have really advanced lately in terms of narrative and politics and um, representation and meaningful emotional beats um but and those things are super super important but 
systems are also important to games, even if they're lightweight or elegant, you know, barely there. Um, and games will always, and some games will always revolve around that mo that moment in chess or go or whatever when you make a clever move and nobody expected it, and it's your understanding of the systems, and you're 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 flipping the entire game with one move or whatever and it's a very powerful moment or someone's flipping it on you and you're going holy shit what just oh, happened oh shit i didn't expect yeah. that oh, yeah, oh exactly. my god how do i deal with this kind of right. thing i've never yeah, had yeah. to do that um <clears throat> and speaking of you know system shock you know this is going to be a remade version that's meant to be released next year by yeah. nightdive studios right. what what do you what are your sort of thoughts on that and I Jeez. can't wait to play it. I mean, it'll have a good interface, I assume. Uh, <laughs> you can and, crouch by pressing C, I imagine, is going to be a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, probably, you know, Xbox controller support. And, uh, you know, I, I hope it's uh, worthy of the original, you know, because all of those, like, little bits that people wrote for the background fiction, that's one of the things that's going on in those games. It was very influential on us. Um is that there's the game you're playing at some level, and then there's the background layer that is telling what happened before, or yeah. you know the lives, the internal lives of the little people around you, and that's very powerful, you know. And and so I hope all of that is is preserved and, well, and they do right former, by that. Former guest of the show, Chris Avalon, PC RPG master, is a part of that project for the writing. So I believe it's in pretty good hands. Yeah, hopefully. So I hope so yeah. too. Yeah. It looks it looks it's going to a sharp uh, guy. Yeah, he is. He's uh, very experienced in writing characters as well, so hopefully it's going to be excellent. But we're going to have to move on to your last game now then, and then we're going to have okay. to get ready to ship you off to your cabin. Uh, I'm not really going to how sure how we're going to do that. Maybe horse and cart. We'll pull up a horse and cart by the Arcane Studio office and be like for Harvey, right. like a cowboy ready to take you. <laughs> Uh, but let's move on to the, the last game on Harvey's list then and talk about his final game. So jumping into the final game now on Harvey's list, and it's a little different. I, I mean, we've talked about shooters and stuff like that, but they're all they've all had a sort of sense of. Um, I think you talk quite often about the places. You know, we've had Rapture, we've had you know we we spoke to a lot about Dunwall as well and Dishonored and stuff like that. But the next thing we're going to talk about is kind of in the same vein as Red Dead Redemption in terms of like open world, and although this game is 
has been highlighted by developers before, it doesn't quite have the same sense of story that Red Dead Redemption has, and it is more about the world. So I'm wondering, I'm very interested to hear what your reasons are. But it's a game that came out in 2008. It was developed by Ubisoft Montreal and directed by Clint Hawking. It is the open-world first-person shooter. And the final game on Harvey's list, Far Cry 2. Harvey. Yeah, so I, I'm part of a small group of people that are Far Cry 2 apologists. Far Cry yes. 2 fanatics. And I, I feel in some way like maybe I was one of the originals. Like when I started saying this is one of the best shooters of all time, people were like, are you nuts? Um, but I just love this game so much. And every now and then I reinstall it and play it again. Um, and every time something new and cool happens. And it, it's often not in the story missions. It's often in the like radio tower assassination missions, which are a little more system-y. But like okay. the combination of like fire spreading, fire propagation model, and the combination of your buddy system, how you can get rescued and you have to rescue your buddy, and like the wildlife around you, in, in my mind, it did so much. And I feel like it has so many problems. Like you, you can't fly the fucking hang gliders. The characters all talk way too fast in the bar. Like there, there, there are tons of problems with the game. But like just in terms of feeling like you're in a place and a dire place where you want to help the vulnerable people and you want to, you really want to execute the, you know, the bastards that are profiting and exploiting and the mercenaries. um, Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, it's a pretty amazing accomplishment. It's a pretty amazing game. And, uh, I have so many stories where, this thing happened because of the setup and where I was and what, you know, what occurred um, that feel like stories that happened in my life or whatever, you know? And yeah, I think that's very powerful as a player. It's, you know, you're telling your own story through systems and players are getting that now from things like player unknown battle Royale, because every time you play the game, you walk away telling incredible stories about what happened. And uh, there it's not driven by, you know, like game systems so much as it is by game systems driven by other players, uh, you know, not AI. So it's, uh, but you know, it's, it's an amazing experience and, uh, it was a shooter with a different tone and, uh, it felt mature at the time and it was just, it generated incredible emergent stories. I have to ask you then as a designer, because we had, uh, on the show previously, we had Brendan Chung, who made Quadrilateral Cowboy and 30 Flights of Loving, and he also chose Far Cry 2, and he was, a, in the same words, an apologist of this game. <laughs> yeah. And uh, one thing I did want to ask him, because as much as I did actually quite enjoy this game, the taking drugs to stave off malaria and stuff like that, and that was, like, frequently. As a designer, would you be so ballsy as to have such a intrusive and repetitive sort of mechanic over a game like far cry 2 which is a game that you're going to play for like 20 to 30 hours yeah Would you so personally it, do that i think it depends because if um you know the value of that system i think is that you're in the middle of something you've mastered the game you know how you're about to do this thing you're driving your jeep you're readying your weapons you've got a plan and then suddenly malaria hits and it changes everything <laughs> i'm pretty sure that's why they did it just to like disrupt the player because players become very good at what they do and, and you need this disruption every now and then so once in a while i had a desperate moment that would not have happened otherwise like i literally fell off a cliff down by a giant waterfall 
running from these guys because I got malaria and couldn't fight them. And, you know, like, uh, um, so I don't know. It probably, there are several tuning things that should have been different, like checkpoints shouldn't have respawned with guards so instantly or permanently. Yeah. Uh, they, they, maybe they should have been permanently cleared until a period of time passed. Uh, and maybe malaria was too common or maybe. I think, you, I think it was the common because yeah. it was like it almost was every 30 minutes or so. And when yeah. you're playing a game, because, you know, games are not, especially games like this, they're not games you sit down for 10 minutes and play. They're games yeah. you sit down for five, six hours. And in that five to six hours, you might get malaria 12 times. That is yeah. a lot of times for something uh-huh. that it's can annoying. really. Yeah. It's, yeah, I mean, annoying. And, and you could have tied it into anything. the other systems. You could have done something like if your player has slept more than eight hours in the last 24 yeah. And they only have half the chance of getting a malaria attack or whatever. You could have done yeah. something like that, but then you'd have to communicate that to the player, and there's a lot already to communicate. Um, you know, so uh, it's, uh, it's uh, you know, like anytime you've got a poisoning mechanic or a starvation mechanic, a run out of oxygen mechanic, you have to be super careful with those because there's a tiny subset of your players that will love you for it because they like this tense experience. And then there's the mainstream players that will just rage at you because, yeah. you know, they don't want to be poisoned or whatever. Yeah, like, fuck, I don't want to deal with this. I'm trying to shoot, like, ten people yeah, in the face. Right. Like, yep. I don't want to have to deal with this. And it is the people who will love it are the people who install, like, the mods for Fallout where you have to eat and drink and, you know, yeah. it makes it, like, that type of survival game. Yep. How do you feel, like, the Far Cry series has moved on then from being like Far Cry 2, you know, where you have to like hand look at a map and a GPS and you're like getting malaria and you can like set shit on fire and stuff like that to being like this sort of mainstream open world sort of just action festival, I think now. Like it's all about the bombastic sort of spectacle of it, I think now. Yeah, I don't know. Um, Far Cry 2 is still my favorite. Um, But there's something to be said for the scope of those other games. Uh, I think... It's like I didn't play the most recent one, but I played the one before that where a bunch of dude bros go on vacation or whatever. And uh, that yeah, it's one, Far Cry Three, I think. Yeah, uh, it had cool systems, but the fiction didn't grab me. Uh, and the most recent one, you didn't like the uh, definition of insanity. That yeah, because that was its whole shtick, wasn't it? Yeah, but the <laughs> but the most recent one looks interesting. Uh, the one set in America assuming they handle the subject matter exactly yeah. right. Um, yeah. And I don't know if they do or not, but uh, that's what would make it interesting to me. Um, if I could, like, live in one of these, you know, militias for a while and understand their weird apocalyptic worldview, uh, that, that would be fascinating. Um, or if somebody you know, did a deep dive on those guys and said, here's why they are utterly flawed and you wouldn't want them as your neighbors or whatever. That might be interesting too, but like, um, I I don't know. I don't know what it'll be like. I hope it's good. You know, it's exciting. It's an exciting setting at least. It is very, uh, I think it goes back to, I think the the one thing you can say about the Far Cry series, at least it's not afraid to try things. I mean, with the malaria and, um, All those kind of things are now having such a sort of controversial setting in 2017. I think more than ever it's needed, um, but it's definitely going to be interesting to sort of see how it plays out. But unfortunately, yeah. you're not going to see it because you're going to be sent to a cabin now. And we're going to pull up the horse and cart and we're going to pull up 
outside your studio now. We're going to get you ready to go to your cabin. So, Harvey, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been an oh, absolute pleasure chatting to you. Um, but there is one last question I have to ask you before you leave. Yeah, and yeah. That's the same question I ask all my guests before they leave. Okay. And that is, um, you know, we talked about games on Final Games. It's in the title, as always. Um, mm-hmm. But one of the important ways we play games is through, like, consoles and stuff like that. And uh, how we play games, the interfaces and the controllers and the, you know, motion controls and all the different weird things that we've done over the years as video gamers. So if you were going to a deserted place where you could only take eight games, but you could take one console with you, and you can't take PC because you can emulate everything on a PC these days. You can only take one console with you, especially a man who's been in the games industry and seen so much over the years. Considering the back catalog and the way we play games on those consoles. If you could only take one console with you, what would you take? Mm-hmm. I guess, uh, yeah, I don't know. That's a tough one because nobody's rivaled yet the Xbox 360 controller, in my opinion. It's the best controller. Um, but the kid in me has to say the Atari 2600 because that was my first gaming rig. Uh, besides my neighbor getting Pong when I was like, I don't know, 8 or 10 years old or something. <laughs> but the Atari 2600 had Adventure on it, one of my all-time favorite games. And it had really cool joysticks. And uh, uh, so if it could play all these incredible games, like, I mean, it couldn't if the joystick has one button on it or whatever. Yeah. Uh, maybe maybe <laughs> that one somehow, but uh, I don't know. We'll allow you to take the Atari 2600 and these eight games then. So, Harvey, okay. please tell the wonderful listeners who have listened so far where they can find you on the internet. And also, there's some DLC and a game they should be checking out, right? Yeah, on Twitter, I'm Harvey1966. And uh, Death of the Outsider is coming out in uh, mid-September. Excellent. Harvey, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. And thank you so much for listening to this episode of Final Games. Of always, of course, you can find Final Games on SoundCloud and iTunes, Acast and Stitcher and all those wonderful places. You can also uh, find us on Twitter. You can find me at LiamBME and also the show at Final Games Show. And of course, please rate and review and do all those wonderful things. And until next time, I hope to see you again next week. Goodbye.